This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Broken Chronicles. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive and a question or category from one of those episodes. And at the end, we have a quiz. So this week, we get the quarterfinals of the 2020 Teachers Tournament. Woo! Go teachers! I particularly enjoy this uh, tournament, because I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I like tournaments. I mean, regular season play is great, don't get me wrong. Like, it's all good. But tournaments, you know, it's a different format, so there's different strategy, and it's like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has a different feel to it, so... We got the quarterfinals week. I remember thinking, I mean, there's not any tournaments that I'm eligible for, but I think I remember thinking to myself when I was starting to uh, try and get on to regular Jeopardy that I was glad I hadn't considered it in college um, because sort of the drawback of the of uh, being in one of these tournaments is that there's kind of a natural cap on how many times you could conceivably ever play the game. That's true. Um, Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Not that most people are going to end up playing, you know, five or six or seven or eight or more games. But if you enter via one of the tournaments, then there's a hard stop. Yeah. You get at most four games. Yep. And then maybe you get to come back for a tournament of champions. If you, won your four games and play potentially four more but yeah yeah did i keep i don't remember if i kept it in the pod, the episode last week or not but when i had auditioned i felt that i was either going to be in the teacher's tournament or i wasn't going to get called uh essentially it was like because i'm a teacher i felt that i had a better shot at getting pulled for that special group rather mm-hmm. than making it in the in the like you know regular contestant pool but as it turned out it worked out better for me to not have been in the teachers tournament, right? Uh, so that which I is an extremely rare case. That is yeah. not to say that that is like oh no one should try to be in the tournament. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's let's talk about Jeopardy. Monday, May twenty fifth. We get Ivory Johnson, a high school social studies teacher from Hollandale, Mississippi. Peter Gouveia, a seventh grade English teacher from Rye, New York. Westchester. shout out and amanda baltimore a seventh grade science teacher from not baltimore but Cocoa beach florida and they get the jeopardy round categories saith the bible anagrams school supplies world history the archies and sugar sugar we just had a, a bible category Last week, I realized the taping of these uh, of the tournament and and last week's games were not uh, consecutive, and the clues that they use for the tournament are from a separate pool uh, than the like regular season games. But we, I know we have talked about this, and we've been doing this podcast for over six months now. There have been a lot of Bible categories, yeah, since we lot. started. Uh-huh. Um, and here we get another one. I mean, just last week we had a whole category on it that we got the deep dive from so yeah i thought this was a little bit of a challenging bible category i mean they they struggled with it and i i did fine um but 
Uh, this <laughs> I was, would hope so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, some of these you really sort of had to know the content a little bit more deeply than a lot of the Bible stuff that we see on Jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah. They did come to that category dead last. It's true. <laughs> In the Archie's category at the $800 level, we had a weird, I guess, Jeopardy quirk. Uh, the clue is, dad to two other star quarterbacks, he played most of his NFL career with the Saints. And Peter rang in and said, who is Manning? And Alex asked which one, and he looked confused and almost like unsure of what he should say. because. And, and then he said, Archie Manning? And Alex told him, you remember, you know, we were asking for the dad, there are three of them. And it's like, well, yeah, but the category but is the Archies. Archies. They were like, asking for the one named Archie. Archie. Yeah, it's in the category. I did not see how that specification needed to be made. But, you know, it's up to the judges and, and Alex and all that. So, Yeah. The other ones, the word Archie was in the clue. And the, re- sure. the correct response didn't have the word Archie in it. But still, still I don't know. It, it, yes, it was, it was a strange Jeopardy moment. Yeah. It's almost like a do you remember what category you're in question. Kinda. Yeah. Although, I mean, how could he have been ruled against if he had said Manning? Right. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we get the Daily Double as the very last pick, 30th pick of the round. Ivory finds it and makes it a true Daily Double with 3,400. This Bible category has uh, not been especially kind to him. He got the 200 and 400 level, um, but he had nags on the 600 and 800 levels. Mm-hmm. The 600, he made a common Jeopardy error. Uh, the clue was, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, for the time is at hand, is in this Bible book. He said, what is Revelations with an S? <sighs> You have to get this one right. It is, what is Revelation? At the $800 level, he also had a miss about uh, Matthew 25, 35. There was a quote, uh, for I was hungered and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a this, and ye took me in. He incorrectly guessed who is a beggar. Uh, the correct response there is a stranger. I guessed stranger, but I wasn't quite sure um because the i think other translations say foreigner foreigner mm-hmm. yeah which is probably a more correct translation but as discussed previously on the podcast um jeopardy always uses the king james version in order to kind of have an authoritative version to go to because yeah. there are so many different translations that you can stop production for a while yeah uh, checking responses <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, in any case, so he's ha- he's had those two misses as the uh, the twenty eighth and 29th picks, and hits this daily double as the thirtieth pick, making it a true daily double with thirty four hundred to Amanda's five thousand six hundred and Peter's three thousand four hundred. He gets the clue in Exodus. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's this when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And he puzzled over it for a minute and ends up guessing what is chosen. That is incorrect. Uh, the correct response there is Passover. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. 
Yeah. So he drops to zero there. And uh, that takes us into Double Jeopardy, where we get the categories TV Teacher Appreciation, C in Science, C in quotation marks, Recent Bestsellers, It's a Fact, All Around New York, and Use Your Words. We got a shout out to uh, at least one of my teaching community's favorite clips at the $1,200 clue in the teacher appreciation category. Mr. Garvey called Roll looking for D-Nice, Balake, and A-A-Ron on the sketch show from this title duo. And that's Key and Peel. Amanda gets that. If you've never seen the substitute teacher clip from, from Key and Peel, check it out. It is very funny. I don't think I have, although <sighs> I've heard people quoting it all the time. So now I know what to go look for. You done messed up, A.A. Ron. <laughs> yes, go watch it right yeah, now. Yeah, I will. I will. You were not wrong about Jeff Purdy, and I don't think you're going to be wrong about this one. So you have book recommendations. I have dumb YouTube clips recommendations. <laughs> so we're equally valid in terms of uh, culture, I would say. You know... I, I think I think we may be, yes. Um, <laughs> I feel like hundreds of years from now, historians are going to be, like, parsing COVID-19 memes um, and trying to, like, explain them to each other. I thought of you from an episode a while ago at the $800 clue in All Around New York. It opened in 1899 with 843 animals. Today it has over 6,000. That's the Bronx Zoo. It sure is. We talked I about that on one of like the earliest episodes. I think we did. That's my that's my local zoo. That's the zoo that's near me. They're closed right now because of the pandemic. Well, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's a great zoo. It's one of the biggest zoos in the United States. Which is crazy to think of, like, really to think that anything in New York is like one of the biggest. Because I always think of New York as being so like tightly packed. Right. But in 1899, the Bronx was like the countryside. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they established this very large zoo, and now it's done. It's, it's established. It's still there, yeah. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. Peter did a great job in this New York category, which is not surprising. Um, Rise near me. Ivory picked up the $2,000 clue, and Amanda picked up the $1,600, um, but Peter got the other three. It was all, it was all pretty accessible. Yeah. Yeah, I got, I didn't, I missed the 2000, but I got the other ones. Yeah. And as we have established pretty firmly, I'm not an East Coaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, a, not a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we get the second Daily Double in the C in Science category. It's pick number 13. It's at the $1,200 level. Uh, Amanda finds it, and she wagers 2000 She's in the lead at this point at 10800 Peter has 7000 and Ivory's at 3600 And she gets the clue, this element, atomic number 27, is used to make blue pigment for pottery and glass. Uh, And she quickly responds, what is copper? But the correct answer is cobalt. And I know copper is used for blue in some Mm -hmm. things, uh, but cobalt is atomic number 27. Yep. And I feel I had I had an association in my head between the word the word cobalt and um, like blue ceramics. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 me too. I I always think of cobalt first when I think of like blue pigment, but mm-hmm. I recently I think recently got wrong in some trivia setting. Blue 
like coming from copper, and so that has stuck mm-hmm. in my head. I think it might have been here, and we might oh, have been it was talking here. about horseshoe crab blood. We were talking about horseshoe crab crab blood. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. The third daily double is the 29th pick at the $1,600 level of recent bestsellers. And Ivory finds that one and makes it a true daily double with 4400 which is, I think, a reasonable call at this point. Uh, Peter's at 11000 Amanda is at 15600 so he's trying to get back in the game mm-hmm. um, at the last second. He gets the clue, Donna Tart wrote The Goldfinch. Kristen Hanna wrote this bestseller that also has an avian title. He guesses what is the birdcage. Um, unfortunately, that is incorrect. The correct response there is the nightingale. So he drops to zero and uh, with only one clue left, which turns out to be a triple stumper, he is at zero when we get to the end of the double jeopardy round. Yeah. And I, I want to point out, uh, because it is important to celebrate things until they actually become normalized. The recent bestsellers category, it was not specified, but they were all books by women. Oh, you're so right. Way to go, Jeopardy. Yeah, nice job. Yeah, not all of the clues even actually mentioned it. I just I had to check on American Dirt. Good, yeah. good, uh, good catch too, Kyle. I would not have, I wouldn't have noticed that. Um, so really, which one of us is the feminist then? <laughs> am I right? All right, no, then. I, I, am, I am not right. Uh, okay, so yeah, Ivory drops down uh, to zero, which is a bummer, and he's not able to get the last clue. So going into Final Jeopardy, Ivory is at zero, which, man, it's always it always hurts to see. Yeah, oof. Uh, so he's not able to participate in Final Jeopardy. Uh, Amanda's at 15,600 and Peter's at 11,000. They get the category U.S. Geography and the clue touching Canada at Boundary County. The northern part of this state's panhandle has been referred to as the chimney. Peter wagered 4601, getting him trying to get a dollar above Amanda, and he guessed what is Minnesota. That is incorrect. Uh, Amanda wagered 2000 and she correctly identified what is Idaho. Now, Minnesota is incorrect for the clue of the chimney. He was uh, thinking of the Northwest Angle, I bet. Alex said there's no, you know, no panhandle in Minnesota, but that, I mean, I saw some arguments about like, you could call that a panhandle. Why wouldn't you call that a panhandle? Hmm. Minnesota is uh, notable for having... Uh, the only place in the contiguous United States north of the 49th parallel. There's like a little bitty section yeah. that crosses that lake and has like one little town. Is that yeah? That's um, the angle. Yeah. Yeah, that's the angle. Yeah, and that's what the and that's what people are talking about. It's like I mean, it juts out of the state. It has a flat, like a like a due north border. Yeah, could be called a panhandle if you want to get get into it yeah um i don't think it usually is called a pan pan handle though anyway touching canada canada at boundary county right it's 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 specifically it's it's specifically idaho yeah it's not ambiguous but sure i uh felt for him especially because 
I ended up landing on Idaho, but like the first thing that came to mind was Minnesota's Northwest angle. And I was like, oh, that's so clever. And then I, the rest of it just didn't quite line up. And I thought for a little bit longer about which states bordered Canada and thought, oh, Idaho's a better, a better choice. Right. Um, but yeah. So Amanda is an automatic semifinalist and Peter, his wild card score is 6,399. Unlikely to be enough, but stranger things have happened. On Tuesday, we get the contestants Sam Matson, a high school English teacher from Cookville, Tennessee, Katie Labarge, a high school science teacher from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Maggie Quaid, a middle school humanities teacher from New York, New York. And we get the Jeopardy round categories from page to screen, 21st century royalty, the proper name is the verb, study groups, by your own, and accord. And we saw in the the beginning of this round, Sam has Sam had buzzer speed, but he took some guesses that I th- I felt like he didn't need to take necessarily. Mm. Particularly in the study groups category, the two hundred dollar clue is pulmonologists. This organ, and he got in and said, "What is the heart?" Uh, but Maggie got the rebound with the lungs, and then the four hundred dollar clue. Hippologist, these animals. Again, he got in first and he guessed what are reptiles. He was not sure. Uh, and then Maggie got the rebound with horses. Mm-hmm. So he he had he kind of like got himself off on a, on the wrong foot there. Yeah, yeah. Being fastest on the buzzer is an advantage, um, but it also can get you into trouble. Uh, the Daily Double comes at pick number nineteen. It is in the Accord category. Sam finds it. Uh, he has 1600 and he bets it all. Maggie's in the lead at 2800 and Katie's right behind at 1400 He gets the clue. The 1985 Plaza Accord devalued the dollar in relation to this, the currency of the only Asian G5 member. Uh, and he gets it correct. He says, what is the yen? So he doubles up his score there. Mm-hmm. We had Kane again in the... Oh, yeah. The proper name is the verb category, although in a weird way, this was a wordplay category where they would describe a verb which also could serve as a first name. And in this case, at the $800 level, to make a visible impression like the one on Kane. That is, what is Mark? (laughs) Katie got in and realized she didn't have an answer, so she guessed what is able, which... To be f- really, Kane is the one who made the mark on Abel, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> too soon. Yeah. Is, that, is, that, oh. is that poor taste? I think I think it's I think you're okay. Um, it's been long yeah. enough. I don't think I mentioned the mark of Kane when I did Genesis last week. I couldn't like yeah had to stay bird's eye view. Yeah, you did not. It's a weird kind of kind of overtly political thing. Hmm. I think. I don't know. You would know better than I would. But, like, basically the statement that all of the people over there are bad. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Anyway. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Meggie is in a comfortable lead at 7,800. Katie is at 1,600. And Sam is at 3,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. Canadian places. 
Women's Firsts, Song Sung Blue, Shakespeare, Schoolhouse Rocks, and E-I-E-I-U-O. Each response will have the sequence E-I-E-I, or E-blank-I-blank-E-blank-I, which is... That's an interesting constraint <laughs> for this, uh, for these clues. Yeah, I got a little nervous about them, but I, I was able to get most of them, I think. I forgot eidetic memory. That's a term I, n- I can ironically never remember. <laughs> it's the $2,000 clue. <laughs> nice. I actually, I, uh, I think I learned the phrase eidetic memory, like, last month, maybe. So I was very oh. pleased to, uh, to have it come up again for me so soon. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the $2,000 clue. What's called photographic memory may actually be this type of imagery. The ability to describe an image no longer present, and that's eidetic imagery. I thought the whole women's first category was was great. We had uh, Sandra Day O'Connor um, that you had to identify by her photo and that she was being sworn in in 1981 at the $400 level. At the 800, Elizabeth Blackwell made history in 1849 when she became the first woman in the U.S. to receive a degree in this. Uh, That is medicine. She also was, I believe, the sister or sister-in-law of the first ordained female minister um, in, in like a major Protestant denomination in the U.S. So interesting family, I imagine. Good to see Katherine Johnson in there, too, at the $2,000 level. Uh, Depicted in Hidden Figures, she was the first woman in the NASA Flight Research Division, credited as an author on a research report. She was a really cool figure. It was fun to see her on there. Yeah. Definitely. And that movie was great, too. It was very good. Yeah. Uh, We get Daily Double number two as the 12th pick at the $2,000 level of Canadian Places. Maggie finds it, uh, wagers 4,000 of her 11,800. She's in a pretty solid lead at that point. Uh, Katie has 7,200. Sam has 5,200. She gets the clue, look above the Arctic Circle to find most of this largest Canadian island, which shares its name with a large bay. And she correctly responds, what is Baffin Island? Mm-hmm. We get the third Daily Double. In the Shakespeare category, at the $800 level, Maggie finds this one, and she wagers 5000 She is in a big lead, 16200 to Katie's 7200 and Sam's 7200 She gets the clue, in Henry IV Part Two. Doll Tearsheet calls this knight a sweet little rogue. And she does not know, but that is Falstaff. Yeah, I, uh, that's something that I managed to pick up um, and retain from studying for Jeopardy a couple of years ago. Nice. Yeah. Uh, mostly that Falstaff is a character who is important in all of those Henry plays. I don't have a good sense of which one is which. Uh, I think at one point I did, but now I don't. Um, yeah. But <laughs> the histories are hard to keep track of. Yeah. Something about this got me to Falstaff. So yeah, tough break, but not too bad for her because she still goes into Final Jeopardy in a solid lead. Um, She picks up a few more questions after that uh, last Daily Double um, to lead the way into Final Jeopardy with 16,400 to Sam's 10,800 and Katie's 9,200. 
they get the category 20th century metaphors and the clue, if it had physically existed, it would have stretched some 500 miles from the Baltic Sea to the Adriatic Sea. And this one seemed on the easy side to me. Um, They all got it right. Yes. Uh, The correct response here is, what is the Iron Curtain? Katie wagered everything to try and get herself a really solid wild card slot. Mm Mm-hmm. Sam wagers 5602 He's trying to get $2 above Maggie. Yeah. Probably wondering if Katie was going to go $1 above. Mm-hmm. And Maggie makes a cover bet of 5201 Uh They all have it correct. So Maggie is an automatic finalist, but with 18400 and 16402 respectively, Katie and Sam are in good shape. For the wild card slots. Yep. Those are real good scores. Mm-hmm. So, on Wednesday, we get the contestants Lauren Schneider Lipton, a high school health teacher from Seattle, Washington, Will Satterwhite, an 8th through 12th grade band and choir teacher from Vinton, Virginia, and Jenna Hall, a high school English teacher from Seaside, California. And we get the categories Geography, Say It in French, A Hit Recently, Yo Ho Ho, A Writer's Life, and Form E, where E will begin each correct response. All right, Jeopardy writers. All right. Writer's life for them, indeed. Indeed. (laughs) I really liked the say it in French category, partially because I knew all of them, but also partly because I imagined myself being on the show and doing the most absurd French accent and seeing how Alex would respond. Yeah. I had a similar experience. (laughs) (laughs) The geography category had maps for all of them, but I think... uh, I think the maps were were helpful and didn't uh, didn't dumb down any of the questions far below their their dollar level. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, I liked the six hundred three nations Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania border this lake. They had a map that showed those three nations bordering Lake Victoria. I've traveled in Kenya a little bit. I think I've mentioned that on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just in general, this was this was not uh, <laughs> um, a picture of. Colorado with a what state is this? <laughs> right, with Utah next to it. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, there were. Uh, it was. Uh, it was a, a little bit deeper. The Daily Double was the 18th pick in the A Writer's Life category uh, at the $400 level. And Jenna found it and wagered a thousand. Dollars. Um, she only had two hundred at that point, so uh, the maximum possible to Will's two thousand eight hundred and Lauren's four hundred. She gets the clue. Born in eighteen ninety eight, taught at Oxford and Cambridge, chronicled big cats, enchantresses, and closets. Died nineteen sixty three. So she she fell for um, a little bit of a mislead there. Um, Big Cats, I think, led her to think of T.S. Eliot's 
what is it, Possum's Book of Practical Cats or whatever that uh, whatever that work is called. Right. Um, she guessed T.S. Eliot. That's incorrect. Uh, this is C.S. Lewis. They're being silly about uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe there with big cats and chantresses and closets. Yeah, not, um, not referring to the recent blockbuster smash hit critically acclaimed musical movie, <laughs> Cats. Yeah. Which everyone um, loved. <laughs> oh my gosh remember when we were all talking about that cats movie i know it seems so long ago uh, <laughs> it's like a couple of months yeah. or years who knows time is without meaning make the jeremy Barry joke again yeah yeah so she drops down a little bit i like that whole writer's life category that was fun i did too i yeah yeah they were interesting clues pointing to uh Pointing to most people I was were able to get. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Will is leading with 5,400. Jenna has 1,000. Lauren is in the red with negative 400. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. We have a situation. TV personalities. Science Now. The Renaissance. Change a letter. And of teachers and tests. I really enjoyed the Renaissance category, but I... Particularly enjoy that, you know, era of history and especially the $400 clue. In the early 1500s, Botticelli and Leonardo da Vinci both lived in this Arno River City, a leading Renaissance setter. And that's Florence. I've always been fascinated mm-hmm. by the Medici family. Mm. And just like in that time period, how like what Florence was and how it influenced so much of the rest of the world. And then... Like, not to say that it's not an important city now, but, like, the it sort of came out of nowhere with the Medici leading it. Hmm. And then it kind of just went back to being a city. Yeah. You know, in the way that, like, big cities are. They're still important and everything, but it it's a city now, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the, the second Daily Double came uh, <clears throat> just a couple clues later in that category. It's at the $1,200 level. Uh, Will finds this one, and... He wagers 3,800. He's in the lead at 6,200. Jenna has 1,000 and Lauren has zero. He gets the clue. Erasmus was the prince of this ism that uses classical learning to gain knowledge of man's nature. And he knows that that is humanism. Humanism Mm -hmm. being a big major part of the uh, Renaissance. Mm -hmm. So he builds his lead there. Yeah. Uh, we get the third Daily Double in the Of Teachers and Tests category at the $1,200 level as the 13th pick. Will finds that one as well and wagers $1,200, uh, which is the true value of the clue. Jenna is at $1,000 at that point and Lauren's at $2,800. And Will gets the clue, Will gamble, you know that this word for an exam supervisor once meant a Roman governor. And he knows that that is a proctor. Probably would have gotten it without the proctor and gamble clue, but it doesn't hurt. Oh, I just, I just, that just connected for me. Uh, yeah. Just below that, we get yet another book that's been on Kyle's shelf, and he has begun reading about 14 times and never actually finished it. The clue is an experienced teacher who helps guide a new teacher. Also, the name of a guide in The Odyssey. And I knew that was Mentor, because, I, like I said, I have started reading The Odyssey, and I have gotten enough into it to, to know that Mentor comes from there. 
And then for whatever reason, like every time I start to read it, life happens and I, I put it down and forget about it for a while. Mm. Are, are you saying that you caused this whole plague pandemic situation by trying to read the Odyssey recently? I have not tried to read it recently. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. This isn't your fault then. Thank you. You know, that's been on my mind, but thank you for putting that to ease. <laughs> All right. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> Glad to help. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jenna is at 9,000, Lauren is at 7,600, and Will has a lock game at 22,400. He just he just really took control in double Jeopardy. It was not close. Mm-hmm. And they get the category fairy tales. And the clue, a familiar chant in this fairy tale, continues, Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. Another Final Jeopardy that seems pretty easy, at least to me. Uh, They all three get it right. Lauren wagered 6401, which is, um, to me, a strange bet. I don't see why she didn't just bet it all. Uh, yeah. Given that situation. Jenna also didn't bet it all, which is really weird to me because it's a lock game. You can assume that, I mean, you should assume that you're not, you don't have a chance of winning. Mm-hmm. And if you get it wrong and you still have like 2,000, you're still not going to get a wild card. So you may as well bet it all to give yourself a best shot on a wild card. I don't yeah. know. I do not know what they were thinking. Obviously, we, as we have said many times, when you're up there and you have to like make a decision... Sometimes you, you know, things come into your head and you make those decisions. So, yep. that's all right. So, Will is a semifinalist. Jenna has a score of 16,500 and Lauren has a score of 14,001. Mm-hmm. And on Thursday, we get the contestants Mary-Kate Trouch, a high school science teacher from Vernon Hills, Illinois. Matt Joyle, a high school history teacher from Hampstead, New Hampshire. And Ben Henry, a 7th through 12th grade vocal music teacher from St. Clair Shores, Michigan. And we get the Jeopardy Round categories American Healthcare, Mythology, Choir Practice, In the State Capitol. Oh, this is a really good board for you, Kyle. Uh, Teaching the Sport, and the Language of Defeat. That is D-E hyphen F-E-E-T. Oh, yeah. This was a very good board for me. Yeah. So Ben had control of the board, and being a vocal music teacher goes to choir practice right off the bat. However, Matt ended up getting three of the five responses in that category, which I'm sure had to rankle Ben. Well, I'm yep. not sure. Maybe maybe he's just a really sweet guy and he doesn't get that way. But I know for me, every time I was not the one to correctly respond to a music question... It just like back oof. off. Those are mine. Yeah, <laughs> one, they're supposed to be mine. Two, I'm gonna get so much flack for not getting it because it's supposed to be mine. Yeah, um, my my religious history professors wanted to know why you got that uh, forms the Luther <laughs> one in our game, Kyle. They were like, Emily, did we not teach you right? <laughs> Yeah, again, it's the buzzer. I knew it. It's the buzzer. <laughs> and and again, most everyone, most of the contestants know most of the answers. Yep. But yeah, that was that was just interesting to me to see, and I was probably particularly attuned to it because it was a music uh, quest category. 
Mm-hmm. We had a bunch of stuff in the mythology category, or two things at least, that came up last week. Uh, we had Cupid's mom is this Roman goddess. Uh, that's Venus. We talked about that. And we had, um, at the $600 level, two stars in the constellation Gemini are named for these twins of myth. This time I knew it because I missed it in the quiz last week. Those are (laughs) Castor and Pollux. That's right. Uh, although you mispronounced it. It's, it's Gemini, I believe. (laughs) That's, you're, you're right. And then, it, and then the thousand dollar clue. My my lack of having actually read all of the Odyssey comes back again. The clue is in art from the four hundreds BC. Odysseus is offered a drink by this sorceress, who had already turned his men into swine. Now I I know the story of that, but I always forget her name, and it's Circe. It is. I think in a previous book recommendations with Emily, I recommended the novel Circe by Madeline Miller. You did, uh, and yeah. and still I can't remember it because. I have not done the work. <laughs> it's a good novel. Um, I'm sure it is. <laughs> book recommendations reiterated. Yeah, re-recommendations. <laughs> yep. We also get the Daily Double in that state capital category. It's at the $800 level. Ben finds it, and he bets all of his 2000 He's right behind Matt, who's at 2200 And Mary-Kate at that point is at zero. He gets the clue... Hernando de Soto State Archaeological Site. And bummer, dude. It like broke my heart. Uh. I, like, respond, like, I, I think he just responded as soon as it came into his head instead of stopping for a second to make sure that it fit, because he said, what is Florida? But they wanted the capital, which is Tallahassee. Right. I, like, you could see him doing the work, you yeah. know? And he got to Florida, and I'm sure he knows the capital of Florida. He just forgot that he was supposed to provide the capital city, yeah, not the state. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ben has brought himself back up into the lead at 5,200. Matt is at 4,200, and Mary-Kate is at 2,400. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. Ancient history, a potpourri of pictures, ten-letter words, poems... Great. I'm a chick and magnet. Alright. <laughs> They're just trying to make Alex say anything now. Yeah. I guess so. They went top to bottom. They didn't go left to right. Oh no, except for the, the, the last category they ended up mixing up the order, but they went top to bottom on five out of the six categories. Oh, did they do that in the first round too when I forgot about it? They Maybe. did. I think they did, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, they went top to bottom on all six categories in the first round. Thanks, contestants. The oh. whole audience likes that. Yeah, good job, guys. We get the second Daily Double in the magnet category at the $2,000 level as the 15th pick. Mary-Kate finds it uh, and wagers 4000 of her 5600 Uh Matt is at 9400 at that point, and... Ben is at 12,800, so she is looking to move into second place. She gets the clue, an 1845 letter from the 21-year-old future Lord Kelvin inspired this British scientist to show how magnetism and light are related. She struggles with her for a little bit. She guesses who is Cavendish. Uh, the correct response there is Faraday. Man, I always get Faraday mixed up with uh, Rutherford and... and... 
now another guy whose name I can't even remember. I can never keep them exactly straight who did what. Mm, yeah. I enjoyed the I'm a chick category. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it was uh, fun. Yeah. It was very pop culture. Uh, oh, yeah. We had... Um, at the $400 level, a third iteration of this game, named for the virtual people created, has an add-on where you fight with Charles the Evil Chicken. Uh, that's The Sims, which I hadn't thought about in a good 10 years. Oh, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, we had Foghorn Leghorn showing up at the $800 level. We had the uh, adult swim show Robot Chicken at the 1200 Never thought that would end up on Jeopardy. Right? Yeah. Um, I still sometimes put the Apocalypse Pony clip on. <laughs> uh, we had at the $1,600 level on The Muppet Show, the love of this Muppet's life was Camilla the Chicken. That's Gonzo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know anything about the show in Practical Jokers, which was at the $2,000 level. Nope. But the rest Not... of them I knew and liked. Yeah. Uh, you didn't know that. Neither do I. Neither did they. <laughs> yep. Was well, a triple stumper. I know we're going to lose a lot of listeners here, but who watches True TV? I'm not sure. It's the, what is that? It's a it's, channel. It's a channel, presumably, right? Yeah. <laughs> At this point, I don't know what's a channel and what's a streaming service. I'm like, I haven't heard of that. I don't know what that is. That's fair. Um, That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Jeopardy is still pushing channels, not streaming services, for the most part. Yeah, because they're syndicated and they got to, like, you know, stick to their own, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, bless these contestants for making the right choice and leaving the poems category for last. This category actually did, I got four out of five. Nice! But of course, the one that I didn't know was also the one that they didn't know. And it's the $2,000 clue. Though this romantic poet lived to be 80, he didn't manage to publish his long poem, The Prelude, before he died in 1850. And guess who that is? William Wordsworth, who I will never have any idea what he writes. <laughs> Ever. Yeah, Does he? I can't trust myself. Yep. That yeah, knowledge will never stick with me. Because I am going to be angry about it for the rest of my life. What I'm hearing is that you want me to do a deep dive on William Wordsworth next week. What you're hearing is that I... I do not want that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if if you want to do that, that's fine, and I would certainly learn. But really, I just want to hold on to this anger. Can't I be an American and be angry, impotently, and self-righteously? Anyway, uh, we get the third Daily Double. It's the 29th pick. It's at the $800 level. Uh, ben finds it. He is in a lock position at this point, so he wagers a smart $100. Mm-hmm. Uh, Because you're not winning money on this episode anyway. It's just a pass to the next round. And he gets the clue, Maya Angelou wrote that it, quote, sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And that is the caged bird. Or a caged bird, I suppose. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, uh, Ben has a lot game with 24,500. Matt has 10,200, Mary-Kate has 1,600, and we get the final Jeopardy category, word origins. The clue is, P.T. Barnum, whose traveling shows carried musicians, coined this word that now represents something growing in popularity. 
Mary-Kate has wagered 1599 uh, everything but a dollar, and responds, what is the bandwagon? Uh, that is correct. She is actually the only one to get this one correct. Uh, yeah. Matt has wagered 800 of his of his 10,200 and responds, what is up? I don't know what he was heading for there. To um, which Alex coolly replies, nothing. What's up with you? <laughs> was he making a joke or was he trying I, to think of something to write? I don't know. I do not know. I also don't know why he only bet 800. Yeah. I mean, it ultimately, um, he got it wrong, so it wouldn't have mattered. But, like, that doesn't seem like a wise uh, wager given wild card thresholds. But. Yeah, you probably want to head for over 14,000 or over 15,000 or, you know, yeah. just go all, go all in because, you know, 10,200 is not going to cut it. So go all in and hope you get it right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ben, who is in lock position, has wagered 822, probably some personal significance there. Um, he's written, what is a fad? That's not correct, but it doesn't matter. He will be back for the semifinals. Yeah, both music teachers. Oh, yeah. Doing it. That's nice. Yeah. So on Friday, we get the contestants Allison Thomas, a 7th grade civics teacher from Port St. Lucie, Florida. Anne Poljou, a high school English teacher from Sandy Spring, Maryland. And Jong Ho Kim, a high school math teacher from Lombard, Illinois. And we get the Jeopardy round categories. Picture the movie, Cool News, Lab Partners, I Have My Doubts, Musical Theater, and Multiple Choice Quiz, where choice is in quotation marks. Uh, The Picture the Movie category was a short clue with like a cartoon image that they made. Like to... a rebus, sort of. No, yeah. not really a rebus. Well, yeah. Almost, no, not exactly. Like the, the, the $200 clue is take a ride with this recent Oscar winning movie. And it is literally a green book. Like the picture is a picture of a green book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The $400 level we had the clue Costner for the win. And then the image was like a little stick figure or something disc doing like a disco move and then like a pack of wolves three wolves that <laughs> was dances with wolves yes they did not show you the next picture where the wolves are devouring him <laughs> so that that's the category yeah that's the gist of it yeah it was, it was a fun gimmick yeah it was nice I, I don't want to see it very often but it was yeah. it was a change of pace and it was yeah it was fine as always, I appreciated the musical theater category. Um, we had Avenue Q in there. I love Avenue Q. I think it was, it might have been my first Broadway show, actually, now that I think about it. Nice. I, I think that was my first Broadway show. There was a clue asking us uh, what Broadway musical Christy Brinkley starred in in 2019 as Roxy Hart. Um, that's Chicago. You don't have to know the theater version to get that if you if you're familiar with the movie version. Mm-hmm. That's another way in. At the eight hundred dollar level, an outdoor production of this musical set in Asia featured an actual Huey helicopter landing nightly. That's Miss Saigon. It's famous for the helicopter scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and Legally Blonde, which I have not seen at the six hundred dollar level, um, but I've heard good things. I have too. We get the Daily Double as the 21st pick at the $1,000 level of Lab Partners. Zhang Ho finds it, 
and wagers three thousand four hundred fifty six. Very math teacher of him. Yeah. <laughs> Allison has two thousand four hundred at that point. Uh, Anne has one thousand six hundred. He gets the clue. In 1942, at the University of Chicago, Leo Szilard helped this Italian create the first nuclear reactor. And he knows that that is Enrico Fermi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, if you hear Italian and, like, nuclear, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be Fermi. Yeah. So... So, at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Zhang Ho is leading with 9,656... Anne has 3,400, Allison has 1,600, and we get the categories Russian to the bookshelf, (laughs) describing the adjective, American history, athletes who teach, sailing the five seas, and Mick people, MC in quotation marks. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the $2,000 clue in the American history category as a shout out to the teachers. Uh, Mm. This education reformer took John Quincy Adams' seat in the House of Representatives, where he vigorously opposed slavery. And that is Horace Mann. Mm -hmm. Hopefully anybody who has gone through teacher training at least knows the name Horace Mann. Yeah. How'd you do with the uh, Russian literature category? How did I do? Let's see. I... I got four out of five. Nice. Yeah. I haven't read a lot of Russian literature, but apparently I know some things about it. At the $400 level, Natasha Rostov and Pierre Bezukov are characters in this Tolstoy masterpiece. That's War and Peace, which I swear I will read someday. Um, but <laughs> It's just so big. It's really big. Such a um, commitment. Yeah. My kids had these board books that summarized great works of literature in 14 words illustrated with little felted figures. Oh, my God. Um, and we had one of War and Peace. Somebody gave them to us as a gift. Um, That's uh, absurd. And, yeah. It didn't have the words Natasha or Pierre as any of the 14 words. But well, I feel like you have to be real choosy when you're, yeah. when you're limited to that few words. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Chivago, I got somehow. I don't really know. At the $1,200 level, I got the triple stumper. This 19th century poet, playwright, and unsuccessful duelist is considered a founder of modern Russian literature. Uh, that is Pushkin. And I think all I know about him is... That's like founder of modern Russian Russian literature as like kind of a Pavlov for Pushkin and Solzhenitsyn, I knew. But I did not know Fathers and Sons. I did not either. Yeah, that was the one I missed too. Oh, well, we get the uh, we get the second Daily Double pretty early in the round. It's in the Sailing the Five Seas category. It's the third pick of the round. Uh, Allison finds it and she wagers 2,000 of her 2,800. Zhang Ho is in the lead at 96.56, and Anne is ahead at 3,400. She gets the clue. The Germans call this bordering sea Ostsee. The Swedes, Ostersjön. And she guesses what is the North Sea, but it is, in fact, the Baltic. Mm-hmm. It's just the other one. I got a little stuck on that one, trying to figure out what Osts 
meant in in both of those words and whether it meant east and what that would mean and yeah. yeah the third daily double we get as the 20th pick at the $1,200 level of describing the adjective uh Jung Ho finds that one and once again wagers 3,456 at this point he's in lock position at Anne has 8600 and Allison has 2800 but there's a good bit of game left to go um mm-hmm. so a uh, a good size wager to extend his lead makes sense you don't want to worry too much about keeping a lock position um when there's still so much money on the board right um, he gets the clue desolate and raw or a title description of a novel house with Ada Cleric, and he knows that uh, that is bleak. What is bleak within Bleak House? And we had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, of course, in one of the video clues. Yeah, Kareem! Uh, the other Jeopardy host. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've seen a lot of Christopher Plummer lately, too. That's true. That's true. They must have recorded a lot of clues with both of them, and they're just working them in wherever they can. Yeah. All right, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Zhang Ho is not a locked position. He is at 25,512, but Anne has worked her way up to 13,800, so it's not a runaway. And Allison is at 3,200. And they get the category, Presidential Libraries and Museums. And the clue is, of the 15 U.S. presidential libraries or museums, three are in this state more than any other. Did you get this one, Emily? I did not. I waffled uh, between the correct response and New York, um, Um, thinking of, I know that the FDR one is here in New York. Yeah. um, And trying to remember if there were, uh, if there were others here. I could think of two that were in, in Texas, which is the correct response, but I didn't, I didn't get the third. Yeah. So uh, Alex tells us that it is both President Bush's and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Allison guessed what is Virginia and lost all of her 3,200. Anne also guessed what is Virginia and lost 2,201. Zhang Ho also got it incorrect. He guessed what is California after crossing off Ohio, both of which are incorrect. Uh, he mm-hmm. only lost 2,142. But the correct response is Texas. And as Alex points out, uh, libraries and museums are much more recent, so mm-hmm. most of the really just start start from today and work your way backward. Right, the, um, the, the way to work it. Yeah, I wonder if Zhang Ho was thinking of Reagan and when he put California, or probably, if he was just thinking well, about like large like size or population. Well, he probably got to Reagan and Nixon. Yeah, I don't know who the third would be. If you're not sure. But no, it's Texas. So Zhang Ho is moving on. And so now we have our lineup for next week. We have the winners that we mentioned before. And the wild card uh, spots are going to Katie Labarge, who is at 18,400. Jenna Hall at 16,500. Sam Matson. At 16402 and Lauren Schneider-Lipton at $14,001, which, whew, mm-hmm. man, she lucked out because she had she had that suboptimal wager that mm-hmm. put her to 14001 but it, it it managed to be enough. Yep. 
Those four wildcard spots go to both of the non-winning contestants from each Tuesday and Wednesday, which goes to one of my kind of Jeopardy things, which is that in this kind of tournament format, uneven difficulty of the final Jeopardy questions really swings who's going to get the wildcard spots. Yeah, Final Jeopardy plays a huge... It, it is. It plays the biggest role, in, in, for sure, mm-hmm. because that determines whether a person is able to increase their score high enough or not. Right. Um, my guess is that they try to make those Final Jeopardy clues of approximately equal difficulty across... Yeah. ...across the quarterfinals, but I think we... As we saw, there were some that played much easier than others, you know, and it... Yeah. You know, it it depends on, you know, the contestants and what they know. You can't really know if something's going to be easy or difficult or if somebody's going to just kind of go down a, a rabbit trail and run out of time. Right. Um, but. It's just the way it is. Yeah. I don't, I didn't think it was an especially even set of, I, I thought the, I thought the Friday clue was a lot harder than for instance, who was going to grind your, which fairy tale has grind your bones to make my bread. I, I will agree that they were not they were not equal difficulty. I don't know. It came to me pretty quick, but of course that's just yeah. like, like we say all the time. If you know it, you know it. If you don't, you know yep. it. So. Yeah. So that's the week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to see these nine come back and play next week. Yes. Um, pulling, yeah. pulling for my music teachers. All right. You can pull for the music teachers. That's okay. Maybe I should pull for the... How many New Yorkers do we have coming back? Uh, uh, I don't think any. Um, oh, Maggie. 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 All right. I'll pull for Maggie. She's a New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. That's the plan. That's what I'll do. Do it. All right. So uh, we had recorded an hilarious and emotionally manipulative plug for our Patreon. But given the uh, recent events in our country and the still continuing events that um, are related to it, we felt that it would be just a better a better decision to rather than ask for you to give us your money, Emily and I felt that it would be better to direct you to uh, some worthy causes, uh, one of which is the Minnesota Freedom Fund, uh, which is actively right now uh, giving attention toward black youth-led movements uh, concerning the murder of George Floyd. I'm sure all of our listeners are aware of what's going on, so Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into the details about it. Um, Also, being who I am, I do not feel that I am am the right person to really speak to it, um, other Mm -hmm. than just to say that it's an important thing to support and... However, we can come alongside people and help toward justice it is useful. Yeah. You can find Minnesota Freedom Fund at minnesotafreedomfund.org. Uh, we are not asking for your support, financial support for us this week, although we are, of course, glad you're here. But please find a way to, uh, to be in solidarity um, this week. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Back, back to our, I guess, distractions. Uh, yes. Time for the deep dive. What? Someday this will all be Jeopardy material. That Hopefully it will be a better world at that time. Yes. Hopefully we can look back on it uh, on the way we look back on a number of other unfortunate 
moments in our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. What uh, What are your deep dive guesses, Emily? What am I talking about? Are you talking about troubadours? Oh, got it in one. What? <laughs> yes, you uh, you gave yourself a uh, an in your wheelhouse kind of uh, deep dive last week, so I felt that you know I can do that too. I can Great. talk about something. Plus, Emily and I were talking about this off air, but there there were not a lot of triple stumpers in this uh, this week. There were there were many correct answers. A lot of I am shocked, shocked that you're not speaking about the television show Impractical Jokers. Shocked indeed. Shocked and appalled. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, this is from Monday's game. It was uh, in the double jeopardy round, the use your words category at the two thousand dollar level. This was a triple stumper. These lyric poets or minstrels of the eleventh to the thirteenth centuries wrote in the Provençal language. And uh, I got it right off the bat, but it was a triple stumper. Ivory rang in and guessed what are bards, which is incorrect. There's a, like the, the specific terminology of writing in the Provençal language is the troubadours. And I'm going to take actually, I, I take a lot of issue with this clue hmm. f- for multiple reasons. And I'll, I'll explain why in my deep dive. So we're talking about the troubadours. If I say to you, you know, I use the word troubadour. You probably think of something like what the clue says, lyric poet or minstrel of, you know, time period in the medieval era. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, troubadour, sure. But actually, <clears throat> lyric poet is, I guess, acceptable. Uh, minstrel is not acceptable as a, as a synonym for troubadours. It is, <clears throat> that is incorrect. Uh, and also writing in the Provençal language, it, that's, that's not entirely incorrect, but they specifically wrote in Old Akhetan, which, hmm. which is like an... Er, it's, it's not not Provençal, but it's not really the same language as what we would call it now. So there, there was some, I think, perhaps a lack of research in the writing of that clue. Mm. Let's get into it. The Troubadours. So the term troubadour has come to encompass the idea of any medieval musician, but this, like I've said, is not accurate. The medieval era was pretty long, right? Basically the fall of Rome up until the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And European culture developed throughout that time. Granted, rather slowly, but things changed. You know, culture evolved. And the troubadours were a group of musicians from a particular region in a particular time period. Like I mentioned, the image of like a wandering minstrel musician is decidedly not a troubadour. So a bit of background in that music in Europe up to this point, and really like continuing on past this point, basically up until, I don't know, the 20th century, was pretty clearly divided into sacred and secular. Most of the medieval music that we have is based in the Catholic Church, uh, for a number of reasons. Of course, we've heard the term Gregorian chant, and if you were to hear an example of it, you would probably say, oh, that sounds like Gregorian chant, even if you have no idea what they're saying or you've never really heard it before much. It's called Gregorian chant because it's attributed to Pope Gregory. Then mm-hmm. the legend was that he received a message from God inspiring him to, you know, write music and establish plain chant as the, like, the good liturgical method for the mass proper and most of the mass ordinary. However, really, it's it's more accurate to give credit to Charlemagne than Pope Gregory. But 
that's a discussion for a different time. <laughs> There's a you can get into a whole thing about Pope Gregory and how how actually like I don't know good he was or not, but that's not what this is about. Just giving some background. So we we right. mostly what we have in you know the medieval era, what we have written is church music, because it was the church, the monasteries, and the clergy who were developing the music. They were coming up with advancements in you know music theory in in the styles that they used and the ways that they used music to uh, set liturgical texts and tell the stories that they were trying to tell so throughout the medieval era we get advancements in style composition complexity and notation Uh, musical notation emerges from the church uh, with a man named guido d'arezzo he is kind of credited with having the first like really legible and communicable notation system because there were notation systems before where basically monks would have the text of the prayer and then they would just put markings around it to show like you know you hold a pitch here you go up here you go down here this is a melisma this is a whatever uh but that kind of thing is only understandable to the person who wrote it whereas guido began writing on what we would like consider the staff although it was very different at that time and if you see old like medieval music printed that's the kind of thing that he started among other ways of like teaching music and everything so a lot of the music that we have written still around and like kind of know how to perform most of it is sacred but there of course was secular music everywhere you know it's hard to imagine that people in their every day-to-day life did not you know, sing songs or, or have fun with music. Um, it's an innately human thing. It's just that the education as far as musical notation did not reach most people, so they just didn't write it down because it wasn't something they thought about. Uh, in fact, even most of the troubadour music that we have is difficult to reproduce because it doesn't have rhythmic representation. Uh, it just has pitch representation, so any given performance of troubadour music from, like, the original manuscripts is going to be unique because the performer has to decide the rhythm. They have to decide how long each note is and where they take Mm -hmm. breaks and all that. Uh, Troubadours were not traveling performers. They remained at a particular court. They were were court musicians and uh, storytellers and poets. They They were not traveling musicians. There were other types of performers at the time or around that time, uh, who I will mention in a little bit. Secular music was and still is used for entertainment, storytelling, dance, or general merrymaking. And those non-musical traveling performers often included wandering scholars, like unemployed priests or monks. And there were also a group of people known as goliards. They were not unemployed priests or monks, they were dropout priests or monks. Um, and the Goliards are now, uh, would be best known for spreading the texts of the Carmina Burana. Carmina Burana is a, uh, a manuscript of 254 poems and dramatic texts from over the centuries, the 11th or 12th century, some even as late as the 13th century, uh, written by a bunch of different authors. They are mostly body irreverent and satirical. They were written mostly in medieval Latin, but some were written in uh, Middle German and Old Arpitan. Uh, And then some are mixed, known as macaronic, a mixture of Latin and French or German vernacular. They were written by students and 
clergy, quote unquote, but like I said, really mostly dropouts, like people who, who kind of left the church. Mm-hmm. And like, like I said, it's satirical and irreverent. It's, it very strongly satirizes the Catholic Church. Um, and from that collection, we get the Karl Orff composition, Carmina Burana. Uh, he took 24 of those poems and set them to music. And you, you may not know if you've ever heard uh, anything from Carmina Burana, but uh, O Fortuna is like probably the most well-known movement from it. And you've probably heard it. Uh, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll edit a little bit of it in uh, just in case you don't know what that is. So those were non-musical traveling performers and, and entertainers. The musical traveling performers were minstrels and jongleurs. They did not typically write their own music, but they did circulate and embellish the music of the troubadours uh, and later other uh, other mu- musicians, composers like the Trouvères and the Minnesingers, who I'll talk about. So troubadours are specifically from the south of France, particularly uh, the regions that we would call Aquitaine and Provençal. Troubadour poetry is written in Old Occitan, and uh, among the earliest records are the Tomita Femina, the Boesis, and the Canso de Santa Fe. Old Occitan is, was the first Romance language with a literary body, uh, and it had an enormous influence on the development of lyric poetry and other European languages. It's also called Old Provençal, so I except like that's not wrong in the in the jeopardy clue but that's i don't i don't know i i would have just said occitan but uh it's one of the it was the earliest form of the occitano romance languages and uh it has writings dating back to the 8th century and it's similar to like i said provencal and also catalan although old catalan and old occitan diverged between the 14th or the 11th and 14th centuries uh, with, with shifts in certain pronunciation and letter usage. So that's that's the language they use. Like I said, the troubadours, they were the first Europeans to develop a high art literary tradition and vernacular. It was not Latin, it was their vernacular language. And troubadour poetry first appeared around the, the turn of the 12th century or 1100 CE. Their repertoire was focused mainly on courtly love. And those compositions, they had a, a number of different genres that they could fall under, depending on what they were trying to say, depending on the purpose of it, or uh, just the poetic form that they wanted to use. Initially, all troubadour verses were simply called verse, V-E-R-S, but that soon came to be reserved for only love songs and was later replaced by the conso. A bunch of other genres that they also used were the alba, which is a morning song, or the song of a lover as dawn approaches, often with a watchman warning of the approach of a lady's jealous husband. They have the conso, like I said, which is just a straight-up love song. There's the comiat, which is a song renouncing a lover. 
there's the Crusade song, or Canso de Crozada, which uh, is a song about the Crusades, usually encouraging the Crusades, because France was the road to the Mediterranean for a lot of a lot of Crusaders. They, you know, Crusaders coming through, they would hear these songs, they would, you know, boost them up and everything. And also, in the courts of the kings and nobles who went off on these Crusades, the musicians wanted to, you know, be patriotic, I guess, and encourage them. Uh, there are also dance styles like a danza or a balada or a distanza. There are their pastorella, which is the tale of a love request of a knight to a shepherdess, which is a very uh, euphemistic way of talking about it. But usually <laughs> pastorellas are knights finding a, a girl they like in the field and demanding uh, that they sleep with them. Uh, there's plan, which is a lament, usually on the death of an important figure. Salut d'amour, which is a love letter addressed to someone. There are also serventes, which are political poems or satire. Tensos, which are poetical debates, usually in exchange between two poets. Like rap battles? Kind of. Uh, only only it's, it's written by one person. So like... Hmm. Oh, okay, yeah. More like if Plato were writing a rap battle. Okay. I guess. <laughs> which now I want to hear that. Uh, and and these these genres were fluid, much like any artistic you know genre or style. During the time, the people doing it are experimenting and trying new things and expanding the meaning of what it is they're doing. So uh, you can find examples of Cervantes and Consos that mix and, and a bunch of other stuff like that. Troubadours performed their own songs. They almost always composed original melodies. Occasionally they would use uh, music that existed before, but they would always write their own poems to it. Like I said, jongleurs and also cantares, they would also perform troubadour songs and then they would go and travel and spread that music around. They often worked from chansonniers or more rudimentary songbooks. Uh, there are many chansonniers that still survive, but none of the more like simple like scratching down a song and then running off to sing it these those don't exist anymore uh some troubadours like arnaud de marul had their own jongleurs uh specifically dedicated to singing their works troubadour songs were usually monophonic which means one melody over harmonic accompaniment uh there are other types of texture when you're talking about compositions such as polyphonic homophonic, heterophonic, uh, and they have different meanings. But monophonic is what we usually think of when we think of just like a song, a person singing, and then the, you know, everything else accompanying it is underneath providing harmonic support. Only fewer than 300 melodies of troubadour music still exist out of an estimated 2,600 that, that were around uh, based on uh, historians looking at uh, codices that still exist and, and like reports and just estimates of things like that. A lot of them were lost. And like I mentioned before, a lot of the notation is not easily read. Even if we can figure out what pitches they were going for, we have no idea what, what the rhythmic identity was and, and how it was supposed to flow. I mentioned a couple of other groups, along with the troubadours, which, remember, were in the south of France and wrote in Old Occitan. Similar movements grew elsewhere, around the same time and afterward. In the north of France, following a similar style, also remaining in court and writing about uh, courtly love, uh, but this time in Old French, were the trouvères, and they were active uh, in the 
sort of latter part of the Troubadours' time. The Troubadours were active from about 1100 to about 1300. The Trouvairs were active from about 1200 to about 1300. Now, you know, that's Mm -hmm. very rough estimate of years, but that's what we've got. A lot more of the works of the Trouvairs survive than the Troubadours. The Trouvairs, we still have 1700 melodies and 2400 existing poems. In Germany, around the same time, the Minnesingers emerged, which eventually became the Meistersingers. The Minnesingers were also concerned with courtly love, very similar, like same kind of, uh, same kind of styles as the Troubadours. But their tradition continued on, like I said, and became the, uh, became the Meistersingers, which lasted up until about 1800, up until about the 19th century. Uh, the Meistersingers were organized guilds of middle and lower class people like craftsmen, tradesmen, also clergy and teachers, etc. And they communicated between each other, these different guilds. We have 120 manuscripts with, with over 16,000 songs in them from the Meistersingers. But they only have the text in those manuscripts because Meistersingers were forbidden to sing from the page. They had hmm. to memorize the music in order to perform it. They, they were not allowed to read the notes off the page, uh, which is why none of the music actually like stuck around. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, those are a couple of other groups. Getting back to the Troubadours. They, like I said, they were concerned with courtly love. So around, around 1100, around the beginning of the 12th century, there was a, a change in the cultural attitude toward women in Europe, or at least in France. Uh, women began to have a little more autonomy, be viewed a little more positively. Obviously, still not as equals to men. Like, that would have been absolutely wild. They were given more leeway and more acknowledgement and more power uh, around that time. And along with that, we get these songs by troubadours you know, focused on this courtly love aimed at usually some unattainable noble woman. Uh, The first troubadour, or who is often considered the first troubadour, uh, was Duke William IX of Aquitaine. Troubadours, one big reason that they didn't travel, that they remained in court, is because most of them, at least early on, were aristocrats. They were either part of the nobility or very wealthy. And, uh they didn't need to go anywhere. And it was a time of peace in France at that time, and so free time and wealth equals, I guess, boredom, so they turned their attention to making music and writing poetry. So really, the first troubadours were just bored rich kids. Hmm. Like I said, they talk about courtly love, and a lot of that that mentality came from writings of the time and also this changing attitude toward women. In particular... Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, whose grandfather was an early troubadour, uh, she patronized the arts a lot, and um, we get one of our most famous troubadours in her court. Uh, that's Bernard de Ventadorn. So there was a treatise written uh, around the beginning of the 12th century called The Art of Courtly Love by the cleric Andreas Capellanus. It's divided into three books, the first two describing love relationships between men and women of various classes. Andreas praises 
refined love in which the woman is treated magnificently and depicts love itself as improving a man's very being, especially when it's unrequited. Notice that. Hmm. Especially when it's unrequited. Love, this is a quote, love can endow a man, even of the humblest birth, with nobility of character. It blesses the proud with humility, and the man in love becomes accustomed to performing many services gracefully for everyone. Oh, what a wonderful thing is love, which makes a man shine with so many virtues. And then in the third book, Andreas turns the tables, exhibiting emphasis on argument and conflicting viewpoints. Uh, So before, he had sort of been referring to woman in general as the noble flesh and blood Mary, And now she has turned to the nasty Eve, a creature to be avoided at all costs. And this is another quote. Every woman is envious and a slanderer of other women, greedy, a slave to her belly, inconstant, fickle in her speech, a liar, a drunkard, a babbler, no keeper of secrets, and never loving any man in her heart. So... Okay. (laughs) See, this is the kind of like milieu that the that the you know troubadours are starting to write into so either feeling this immense like passionate love that brings out all the best in you or like having it turn on you in a moment and being like ah this person is the worst Um, which is what we see in a lot of their poetry Mm -hmm. it is mentioned in the text that i'm that i'm referencing with such ideas in circulation it is no wonder that the nun hildegard of bingen created a world in which triumphant souls had their own relationship with the gentle bridegroom, Christ, who would not violate. I could have done a whole deep dive on Hildegard of Bingen, who is a fascinating woman. Oh boy, is she ever. She's awesome, and also immensely important in the history of music, but talking about troubadours, not Hildegard. Legit lobbying right now to name our dog Hildegard. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she's awesome. Uh, Anyway... So, I'm going to talk about a couple of uh, important people, and then I will wrap it up. So, uh, one of the earliest troubadours of whose uh, poetry that we know of is one named Markabru. However, we don't have a lot of information about him, really no certain information, because the only two Vidas that we have attached to his poems tell different stories, and they're both apparently built on hints in his poems rather than independent information about him. When you would find these chansonniers with uh, the poems of the troubadour, usually at the beginning of it or at the end of it, there would be a vida, which is the like the biography of the troubadour who wrote it, or supposedly wrote it. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, Marcabru uh, was the son of a poor woman. He was abandoned at a rich man's door brought up by Aldrich del Villar and learned to make poetry from a poet and another early troubadour named Circamon. He became famous, Marcabru, he, he wrote good poetry that people really loved and good music, uh, and apparently the Lords of Gascony, about whom he had said many bad things, eventually put him to death. So, mm. cool. Super good. Uh, 44 poems are attributed to, her, to him. They are often difficult, sometimes obscene, and relentlessly critical of the morality of lords and ladies. He used different genres like the pastorella, which he used to point out the futility of lust. And he also may have uh, originated the tenso with uh, a debate about the nature of love and the decline of courtly behavior. Uh, He was a big influence on later poets uh, and later troubadours. Four monophonic melodies to accompany his poetry survive, and there are 
three melodies of poems that may be contrafacta of Mark Abreu's work that might be attributed to him. Uh, contrafacta in vocal music is the substitution of one text for another without changing the music. The other famous troubadour that I want to talk about, I mentioned before the name uh, Bernard de Ventadorn. He might be the most famous troubadour, although there were plenty of them. It is believed that he was possibly the son of a baker at the castle of Ventadorn. Another source, a satirical poem, indicates that he was son of the son of either a servant, a soldier, or a baker, and his mother was also a servant or a baker. Either way, he most likely learned the art of singing and writing from his protector, the Viscount Ebla III of Ventadorn. He composed his first poems to his patron's wife, Marguerite de Turenne. After falling in love with Marguerite, he was forced to leave Ventador. <laughs> uh, and he traveled around to Montluçon and Toulouse, and eventually he followed Eleanor of Aquitaine to England and the Plantagenet court. Uh, evidence for these travels comes mainly from his own poems. Later, he would return to Toulouse, where he was employed by Raymond V, Count of Toulouse. Uh, and later he went into a monastery where he likely died. Forty-five of his works survive. He is unique in among secular composers of the 12th century in the amount of music that has survived. So he has 45 poems, and 18 of them have music intact, which is unusual for a troubadour. Like I said, the Trouvères had a much higher survival rate, usually attributed to their works surviving the Albigensian Crusade, which is a whole nother uh, deep dive we could go into. But the Albigensian Crusade scattered the troubadours' music and destroyed many of their sources. It also scattered the troubadours themselves. Man, I really want to talk about that, but now is not the time. Yeah, uh, I mentioned he followed Eleanor of Aquitaine. He also fell in love with her, which goes along, like I've been saying, with the whole ideal of the troubadours of writing, you know, courtly love, uh, aspiring for the unrequited love of some woman who is higher than you, higher social status, some unattainable love. And uh, one of his most famous songs, a canso titled... Which is when I see the lark beating. It is it's an analogy about the poet becoming a creature of nature who soars ecstatically at one moment then falls when he remembers his lost love. Uh, and eventually he ends by addressing Tristan, who is the embodiment of sorrow. Tristan now owns his heart instead of the lady who he loves. That song is seen to be like him lamenting not having his love, but uh, he actually nicknamed... Eleanor Lauzeta, or Little Lark. So in a lot of his writings, any reference to a lark is actually uh, directly referring to Eleanor of Aquitaine. And Eleanor sort of returned his affection, not fully. They were never consummated, uh, at least as far as any uh, record goes. Uh, but she did enjoy his attention. There is a story of Bernard in his jealousy hiding in Eleanor's room and spying on her and her lover, which is just a super cool look for you, Bernard. Mm. Not only do we have a lot of his music and a lot of his work, but he like pretty fully encapsulated the idea of this court musician and what he was, uh, what the troubadours were writing about. Now I've talked about men this whole time, but there were female troubadours. They were known as uh, trobarites. One of the most famous or most well-known is the Comtesse de Dia or Beatrice de Dia, who lived around the second half of the 12th century. So we have five of her pieces still surviving, and one of them is a tenso, or the debate, 
In fact, more than half of the poems attributed to Troberitz embody some kind of argument or another. However, none of the none of the details in Contessa's Vita can be verified, and it's possible that she was entirely made up. Hmm. Uh, but we know with like there is enough evidence and enough uh, enough writing of different women, you know, writing their own poetry, writing their own music, that we know that Troberitz were a real thing. Like I said, a lot of the troubadour music was gone, and that includes a lot of the Troberitz music and writings. So uh, I mentioned the Albigensian Crusade. Again, I'm not going to talk about that, but that was a um, that was the end of the troubadours, also known as the Cathar Crusade. And it was a military campaign initiated by Pope Innocent III to eliminate Catharism in southern France. And really, it was more of a political move. It really just... Uh, it smashed the power of southern France and scattered the courts. So that was the end of the, the troubadours. Other movements like the Trouvères, I mentioned, just kind of like ended. But the troubadours were very, very, uh, very clearly like stopped with the Albigensian Crusade. Okay, I just talked about that for a long time. Ah, uh, that's fascinating, though. Those are the troubadours. So do not allow yourself to fall into the trap of thinking that a troubadour is the same thing as a wandering minstrel. Not at all. All right. Totally separate. I've got it now. Yeah. So now that I have bored you to death talking about troubadours. <laughs> Not at all. You ready for a quiz? But yes, I am. Okay. Question one. Modern minstrels, whose leader was taken by a modern plague, sang the following lyrics. For five points each, give me the band and the title of the song. So I'm going to give you the lyrics of the last verse of the song. And I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to say it. And it's going to be hard to do without doing the rhythm, but I'm going to try. Uh-oh, okay. Be gone with you, you shod and shady senators. Give out the good, leave out the bad, evil cries. I challenge the mighty titan and his troubadours. And with a smile, I'll take you to blank, where blank is the title of the song. Oh, goodness. I don't know if I know it. Could you give me the whole thing one more time? Sure. I'll give it a little bit of cadence. Maybe that'll... Okay. Be gone with you, you shot and shady senators. Give out the good, leave out the bad, evil cries. I challenge the mighty titan and his troubadours. And with a smile, I'll take you to... blank. Was there a clue in the question? I'm trying to remember. Kind of. Modern, modern troubadour, something plague... Modern okay. minstrels whose leader was taken by modern a modern plague right. sang the following lyrics. I don't think I know it. Uh, okay. That is that song is The Seven Seas of Rye by Queen. Oh! Okay. I didn't know the song title, but I should have guessed Queen. That's okay. All right. I, I love that song. That, that is one of my favorite Queen songs. It doesn't, it doesn't, I know a lot of people don't like stack it up against like, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody and We Are the Champions mm-hmm. and all that, but Seven Seas of Rye, I, I really like that song. Anyway, moving on. Question two. Contemporary to the Troubadours was a Parisian theologian, teacher, and philosopher. His ill-fated affair with a pupil has become synonymous with forbidden love. In the years after their affair, he composed many songs for her. Their story has been told many times over, including the 1988 film Stealing Heaven, featuring Derek DeLint and Kim Thompson. 
Who is this famous couple? I think I, I, I think I uh, know him maybe better as a theologian than uh, from the uh, from the romance that you're referencing. But that's uh, that's Abelard. Yes. Do you know his lover's name? Uh, Eloise. Yes, that is Abelard and Eloise. Yes. Yep. Yeah, that story is weird. Yeah. But yeah, he also uh, so after after their love affair ended, um, and. Parents, if you're listening with small children, cover their ears for the next, like, 30 seconds. The affair basically ended because uh, someone that he thought he could trust, he could not trust, told, like, hired people to basically break into his house and castrate him. So, mm-hmm. yeah. After that, and they, they split up. Eloise went to a nunnery. Abelard took the cloth. They wrote a bunch of letters to each other and about each other. And as part of those writings, he also composed a lot of music, a lot of songs to her. So, yeah. Nice. Yes. Uh, all right. Question three. In the Jeopardy episode, Ivory responded bard when he should have responded troubadour. An easy mistake to make, considering the words minstrel, troubadour, and bard have become interchangeable in modern parlance, even though we've discussed why it's not, not true. However, bard usually refers to storytellers who would often use epic poems to entertain with or without music. In the fifth edition of what popular role-playing game did publisher Wizards of the Coast finally make the bard an actually playable class for anyone who wants to feel useful? Hmm. I'm trying to think of options other than the obvious one, um, but I'm going to go with the obvious one and guess Dungeons and Dragons. And it is the obvious one. It is Dungeons and Dragons. Yay! Yay! Yeah! Yes. Thank you, Wizards. Thank you for making the Bard something that people would want to play. Because in earlier editions, it's useless. Anyway, I'm not going to go on a rant about that. Okay, question four. Speaking of poems, the troubadours developed the first European poetic tradition. A later tradition is the sonnet, which has evolved through a number of forms and styles. The first, however, came from Italy and is named for who? Petrarch. He is, oh, well... Okay, Sorry. there we go. <laughs> I should let you finish your yes, question. Yes, you're right. It is Petrarch. Absolutely. Uh, Let's hear the rest of the question. A little though. bit more information. He's often called or referred to as the father of humanism, although that could also be like dealt with with Erasmus, and coincidentally comes from Arezzo, the same town as Guido, who developed musical notation. So there you go. Yes, it is Petrarch. Nice. Sorry, I, sorry I stepped on your toes. No, there. it's I was fine. I so excited no. to be sure I had the answer. Yeah. All right, you are up to 30 points, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Question five. Speaking of minstrels, minstrel shows were variety shows in the 19th and early 20th century America, which usually included white performers utilizing what offensive practice? Even before the Civil War, Frederick Douglass called it, quote, the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied them by nature in which to make money and pander to the corrupt taste of their white fellow citizens. Good thing we're all done with that as a society, as long as we ignore Brett Kavanaugh and Justin Trudeau and Jimmy Fallon and, uh, and so on. Uh, I believe you're referring to blackface. I am yeah. referring to blackface. Yeah. Yes. <sighs> anyway, I, yeah, I, perhaps that was on my mind as of late for some reason. Uh, cool. So you're going into final with 40 points. Uh, and, All right. and the category for it is, let's say, the times they are a-changin'. Oh. Um, I will wager 35. Okay. Often, 
and as we've discussed erroneously, referred to as a modern-day troubadour, what singer-songwriter was given the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2016 for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition? Uh, that's Bob Dylan. That is Bob Dylan. Yeah. But I believe he didn't actually go to accept it. I think that's right. I think you might be right. Yeah, so he was granted the Nobel Prize, but he didn't actually go to accept it. Uh, uh, instead, That's weird. Yeah, instead, Patti Smith accepted it, which is like, my feelings yeah. on, on Bob Dylan are, are, I will say, robust. So, we'll <laughs> leave it at that. Uh, but yeah, nice. You nailed it. 75 Yay. points. 75 points. I should have known Queen, though. That's, yeah, it happens. All right, well... Good job, Emily. Hopefully you, the rest of our listeners were able to also have some success with that quiz. So thank you for listening. Again, thank you for being here. We, we really appreciate it. It's fun for us to do this with ourselves, but it's also nice to share it with you out there too. Please subscribe and review and give us a rating perhaps on whatever program you're using to access our podcast. And you can... Check out our Patreon, but like we said this week, and uh, potentially for you know some time going forward, uh, it might be better to direct your finances toward a worthy cause, like we have mentioned before. Mm-hmm. But you can tell your friends about us. They might be home watching Jeopardy. They probably should still be home. Tell them they should be home. Um, all right, that's enough about that. Stay home! Uh, <laughs> just because you're technically allowed... To go to the beach or whatever does not mean that that's the wisest choice. South Korea has already closed all their schools again. Stay home. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Ah, gotta get on top of this, guys. Um, all right. Uh, stay home. Watch Jeopardy. Uh, tell your friends to watch Jeopardy. Tell your friends to listen to our podcast. You can find us on social media. We're at Potent Potables 1. And we're on Facebook at Potent Potables. You can find our website at potentpod.com. And if you want it. Email us and uh, tell us what you think. Um, we're at potentpotablescast at gmail.com. Uh, we'll be back with you next week to talk about the second week of the teacher's tournament. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.